And welcome to the Growing Patriot Podcast. I am your host, Amelia Hamilton. And when we left off, we were at the Second Continental Congress, where representatives from all 13 colonies had decided that it was time for us to be free, but they knew that there would be a war and appointed George Washington to be in charge of the new Continental Army. This week, we're going to dig into that Continental military a little bit, find out who they were, what they did, and what the plan was. This episode is going to be a little bit different. First, we're going to have my friend Alexander, and he's going to tell us what he thinks of the Continental Army. Then we're going to talk to Cole Lyle. Cole is a former Marine and a military expert. After the episode, stick around for a little bit because Cole has a great overview on American military history from the very beginning with George Washington up until now. Let's jump in. Hi, my name is Alexander. I am six years old and I live in Virginia. Welcome, Alexander. Tell me, why was the American military created? Because there would be a whole bunch of countries ruling over us. Exactly, and we wanted to rule ourselves. Who were we fighting, though, in the beginning? The British. You got it. And why were we fighting? For freedom. Exactly. We wanted to be free to choose our own path. So what do you think? Was it a good thing that the Continental Army was created to fight for freedom against the British? Yes. Okay, this is a tough one. Do you know the different branches of the military? Um, Air Force, Navy, Coast Guard, Marines? Yep. What else? Army and Space Force. You got them all. Do you have a favorite? Um, Air Force. All right. Now let's check in with our expert of military history. My name's Cole Lyle, uh, and I am a former Marine myself. I served from 2008 to 2014. Uh, I was enlisted. Uh, there obviously are officers in the armed forces, and then you have people that enlist. Um, and so I went that route right after high school, um, did that, and then went to Afghanistan in 2011, uh, came back as part of uh, the uh, Operation Enduring Freedom, which was the United States response to the attack on the, uh, the towers in New York City on September 11th in 2001, and uh, came back and got involved in uh, veterans policy, and then uh, that kind of led me to back to D.C. I finished my degree and came back and uh, started working for a big uh, veteran service organization, the American Legion, which is one of the only veteran service organizations that is chartered by Congress. Um, and then from there, I ended up getting a job with uh, a member of Congress doing their uh, DOD, the Department of Defense and Veterans Affairs policy. Uh, and I've been doing that for the last three years now. Actually, the 24th of July will be my three-year anniversary. So when I started getting involved in military policy, obviously it, it helps 
to uh, understand the history behind not only the uh, each individual branch, uh, but the kind of American military and how it interacts with other government agencies and uh, where their legal authorities are and everything like that. So, um, yeah, Absolutely. so that's kind of a little yeah. bit about and you And you're back in school now. Yeah, so I'm actually, um, it's, it's interesting because each service, the Army, the Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, and now the Space Force, which is the newest uh, service branch, mm-hmm. um, I don't think the Space Force has it yet, but each other branch has a what they call a senior service school, which is, um, so the Army has the Army War College, the Navy has the Naval War College, uh, and it's a... Uh, master's degree that they send some of their senior officers to uh, to get a degree in strategic studies, which essentially is an all-inclusive degree, uh, master's degree in the United States Armed Forces, uh, and again, kind of, you know, how they uh, help and assist uh, all the other agencies in defending the United States of America um, and you know, accomplishing their missions. So yeah. it's uh, it's been an interesting, interesting. Uh, it's a two-year program, and I'm just about finished up with it. So yeah, uh, it's been an interesting, uh, interesting time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so speaking of defending our country, and let's talk about why the military was created in the first place. Who were we fighting against? Why were we fighting? What what happened? Well, so originally, um, you know, the uh, the Continental Congress uh, created uh, the Army and the Navy and uh, and a battalion of Marines. So there's actually um, a provision that two battalions of Marines be raised. And at the time, Marines were uh, used to protect Navy vessels from uh, enemies being boarded. But um, we'll come back to that. So the... The British, obviously, were the main enemy at the time uh, of our independence. Uh, but the Continental Congress was very, and, and other people in the United States were very wary of a standing army. Um, so when the uh, Revolutionary War ended, everybody went home. There was no permanent uh, you know, army or permanent navy, um, and that would not change for quite some time. Um, but, you know, the the need was identified to obviously to defeat the British. Um, and George Washington was the first uh, commander, uh, commander-in-chief of the armed forces of uh, the United States, of the Continental Congress, and the 13 original colonies. Who was in, who were these people fighting in the original Continental Army and Navy and the Marines? Um, well, I mean, so George Washington spent a lot of his own money uh, drafting and outfitting local people. Uh, they were average, everyday people uh, that lived in the colonies and didn't want to see the British, uh, you know, continue their aggressive policies of housing, uh, forcing uh, soldiers to be housed in um, local houses. They didn't, uh, you know, they found the British taxation system to be oppressive, um, several different reasons, but it was just average people that uh, joined, uh, you know, these 
these military arms, the Army, the Navy. I should say that, uh, you know, we didn't have a, a huge Navy um, in the Revolutionary War. The French largely loaned us um, their Navy for, for mm-hmm. that conflict. Um, because ships are expensive and they take a long yeah. time to build, and we just didn't we didn't have the time or the money at the time, um, mm-hmm. and so we relied heavily on uh, the French Navy in uh, the Revolutionary War. Uh, but okay. we did have United States, you know, people at the time. They weren't United States uh, people, but um, okay. members of the Continental Forces that served on uh, French Navy vessels. But you know, we didn't have a uh, a navy in the Revolutionary War. Uh, okay. Just, just so, to clarify. So, what, what what were the branches that we had at that time? Well, we had the army. Uh, obviously, the Continental Army, um, the Continental Navy was established, but again, um, you know, we just didn't have that many of our own sure. uh, vessels itself. So, and we had two battalions of Marines uh, that augmented uh, the the French uh, and our own small little navy uh, that we had to protect those ships. And at the time, like I said, Marines were used to uh, largely in a defensive nature. They weren't really an attack force uh, to defend um, our own vessels from being boarded uh, by enemy combatants and taken over. So, okay. Yeah. But we didn't have yeah. an Air Force. We didn't have a Space Force, none of that. Those are obviously adaptations of um, the nature of war that has not... That has not changed, but the character mm-hmm. of warfare has continued to change over time and involves new weapons and new domains. And um, so as things change and, and threats get bigger, uh, you need a larger defense establishment. Sure. Yeah, it's incredible incredible to see what, what the relatively small continental forces were, were able to achieve for, for liberty yeah. and creating a new country. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and it was it was anything but certain until uh, General Cornwallis, who was a uh, British general, uh, uh, surrendered in the South at Yorktown because he was surrounded by the French Navy and the Continental Army, um, and you know, small French forces on land. Um, you know, it definitely was not certain that the United States was going to win that war, um, and it was a remarkable military uh, victory, uh, but it was even more remarkable because it was obviously underpinned by mm-hmm. the political ideals of the Continental Congress, and that's why um, you know the, the founders in our country were so genius uh, in that they wrote documents that were timeless that could continue, uh, continuously be um, adapted more or less, not really adapted, but they could be suited for all different times, and obviously Thomas Jefferson and others um, created all men are created equal, uh, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Uh, There was no mention of slavery, uh, and that was intentional. Uh, There was no mention of humans as property because they knew that um, slavery would continue to be a thorn in the side of the United States. And in the founding documents, they wanted to give future generations that would have uh, a um, better chance of abolishing the slave trade and slavery, they wanted to give them the, um, you know, the, the language needed in foundational documents to be able to, to do that generations later. So they were geniuses. Um, obviously, a lot of them were very flawed men, um, but, you know, not history is, is written 
and you know carried out by flawed men and women. So. Sure. Yep. And we have a lot to be grateful for too. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. All right. Well, Cole, thank you so much for joining us today for this great overview. I think this is really going to help as we move forward to talk about the actual battles and how we won our freedom. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if there are any questions or anything, feel free to reach back out, and I will answer them to the best of my ability. Great. Thank you. That was so great. Let's talk about what we learned this week. The Continental Army was first created to protect us from the British and so that we could become a free country. But originally, there was no standing military. These were just average people who joined the military when they were needed and then everybody went back home when the fight was over. We had an army when we started and a few battalions of Marines to protect our tiny navy. But remember, France loaned us their navy and that was really the only naval power that we had at the time. None of our military was very big or very powerful, and we were up against the most powerful country in the whole world, so we really didn't know that we could win, but the colonists knew that fighting for freedom was worth it. And it still is. Remember to stick around after the episode, where we have a whole special interview with Cole about American military history from the beginning right up until now. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Remember to visit growingpatriots.com for this episode, every other episode, and all of the coloring pages, videos, and other resources that go along with them. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Growing Patriots. My name's Cole Lyle, uh, and I am a former Marine myself. I served from 2008 to 2014. Uh, I was enlisted. Uh, there obviously are officers in the armed forces, and then you have people that enlist. Um, and so I went that route right after high school, um, did that, and then went to Afghanistan in 2011, uh, came back as part of uh, the uh, Operation Enduring Freedom, which was the United States response to the attack on the uh, the towers in New York City on September 11th in 2001, and uh, came back and uh, kind of experienced some of my my own issues with post-traumatic stress and TBI, and so I got involved in uh, veterans policy, and then. Uh, that kind of led me to back to D.C. I finished my degree and came back and uh, started working for a big uh, veteran service organization, the American Legion, which is one of the only veteran service organizations that is chartered by Congress. Um, and then from there, I ended up getting a job with uh, a member of Congress doing their uh, DOD the Department of Defense and Veterans Affairs policy, uh, and I've been doing that for the last three years now. Actually, the 24th of July will be my three-year anniversary. So, um, so yeah, I mean, outside of just all of that, I uh, I like to read a lot. Uh, when I was in sixth grade, um, I don't really know what got me into World War II history, but um, I just started really getting interested in World War II history and uh, read a lot of books. And, 
my love of kind of military history just evolved from there, especially when I joined the military and then when I started getting involved in military policy. Obviously, it it helps to uh, understand the history behind not only the uh, each individual branch, uh, but the kind of American military and how it interacts with other government agencies and uh, where their legal authorities are and everything like that. So, um, yeah, Absolutely. so that's kind of a little yeah. bit about and you And you're back in school now. Yeah, so I'm actually um, – it's it's interesting because each service, the Army, the Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps – Coast Guard and now the Space Force, which is the newest uh, service branch. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think the Space Force has it yet, but each other branch has a what they call a senior service school, which is um, so the Army has the Army War College, the Navy has the Naval War College, uh, and it's a uh, master's degree that they send some of their senior officers to uh, to get a degree in strategic studies which essentially is an all-inclusive degree, uh, master's degree in the United States Armed Forces, uh, and again, kind of, you know, how they uh, help and assist uh, all the other agencies in defending the United States of America um, and, you know, accomplishing their missions. So yeah. it's uh, it's been an interesting, interesting uh, it's a two-year program, and I'm just about finished up with it, so. Yeah. Uh, been an interesting, uh, interesting time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so speaking of defending our country, and let's talk about why the military was created in the first place. Who were we fighting against? Why were we fighting? What What happened? Well, so originally, um, you know, the uh, the Continental Congress uh, created uh, the Army and the Navy and uh, and a battalion of Marines. So there's actually um, a provision that two battalions of Marines be raised. And at the time, Marines were uh, used to protect Navy vessels from uh, enemies being boarded, but um, we'll come back to that. So the the British, obviously, were the main enemy at the time uh, of our independence. Uh, but the Continental Congress was very, and, and other people in the United States were very wary of a standing army. Um, so when the uh, Revolutionary War ended, everybody went home. There was no permanent, uh, you know, army or permanent navy, um, and that would not change for quite some time. Um, but you know, the the need was identified to obviously to defeat the British, um, and George Washington was the first uh, commander, uh, commander in chief of the armed forces of uh, the United States, of the Continental Congress, and the 13 original colonies. And uh, from that time, the United States uh, called upon an army, and particularly a navy, because at the time, uh, most conflicts, because the United States was kind of not on an island, but it was uh, protected by two oceans, and, you know, uh, ballistic Mm -hmm. missiles didn't exist at that time. So... (laughs) Um, you know, you had the Navy that played a critical role uh, in things like the uh, first Barbary War, where Thomas Jefferson sent um, the United States Navy over to northern Africa to uh, defeat pirates that were 
yeah. you know, di- disrupting United States trade. Um, and then the second Barbary War, which actually, uh, funny story, I'm going to sprinkle in little marine history sure. tidbits just because I'm, you know, former. Sure. Ale- actually, Alexander's dad was a marine. Yeah, so, so he yeah. probably already he probably already knows this, but um, you know, in the in the Barbary War, uh, Lieutenant Presley O'Banion, who was a Marine lieutenant at the time, um, you know, defeated the Barbary pilot the pirates and the uh, I'm, I don't want to I don't want to say, but the leader of uh, the local people in Tripoli gave Lieutenant Presley O'Banion a Mameluke sword which is a, a special sword with an ivory handle. Um, I don't think they're made of ivory anymore, but they used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the Marine Corps uh, now gives every officer, uh, and they wear it at ceremonies and special events, but it's the symbol. It became the symbol of the Marine Corps officer and the uh, you know the warrior ethos that uh, the Marines uh, cherish. So, interesting. Yeah, I know uh, the history of that sword. I've certainly seen one before, but yeah. I knew that story. So, also, um, uh, anyway, so Lieutenant Presley O'Banion uh, received the, the sword from the Second uh, second Barbary War, I think, actually. Um, and then, of course, you know, there were some small skirmishes here and there leading up to the American Civil War. Um, but the Civil War was... Uh, and still remains the deadliest conflict in United States history because obviously it's Americans uh, fighting Americans, and so mm-hmm. you're going to have a very high casualty rate. But in that war, you had uh, you had you know the Union forces, uh, Army and uh, Navy, and then you also had uh, Con- Confederate States of America forces, uh, so the Confederate Army, and they also had a Navy. It wasn't a very good one, but uh, mm-hmm. They had one, and uh, they fought each other. Obviously, we know the result of the American Civil War. Uh, Grant uh, accepted Robert E. Lee's surrender at the courthouse at Appomattox. Uh, The war ended, and then uh, the next major uh, conflict that the United States was involved in um, was World War I. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, you know, there was a, a long period of reconstruction after the Civil War and then, you know, uh, a period of relative peace. There were still obviously, you know, little things here and there, but nothing as big on the scope sure. and scale as the Civil War, World War One. World War One was billed as the war to end all wars. Um, the United States was reluctant to get involved and didn't do so until uh, the situation was uh, fairly dire. And then... Uh, you know the the Allies won World War One. You see another I don't know decade and a half ish. I'm going to get the dates not entirely correct because I don't have them in front of me. But okay. um, the United States enters World War Two in uh, 1941 in December after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Obviously, World War Two had been going on since 1939 when the Germans invaded Poland. Uh, Nazi Germany invaded Poland. Mm-hmm. Um, the United States got involved because the Japanese, um, whom the Americans had embargoed uh, their oil as a response to a couple of different things, but um, retaliated for the oil embargoes and uh, in a surprise attack at September 11th, in which um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who at the time was President of the United States, called a day which will live in infamy. And the next day, 
the United States declared war on Germany, not Japan. Um, but it was very quickly after that the United oh. States declared war on Japan. Um, the World, World War II saw the largest increase in uh, industrial production uh, in our nation's history, which is actually what lifted us out of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, World War II ends. Uh, you see uh, a period of relative calm in which the new world order was established. The new liberal world order was established, and I mean liberal and little l, mm-hmm. um, because you had organizations set up, uh, Woodrow Wilson's League of Nations that had failed, uh, you know, kind of morphed into what we now know as the United Nations um, that was established uh, in 1947. The National Security Act of the United States uh, created the modern United States military framework. So I said earlier that, um, you know, we didn't really have a standing army um, up, up to this point. And so the National Security Act of 1947 uh, established the uh, national military establishment with the president as the commander-in-chief and the Defense Department uh, headed by the Secretary of Defense. It also created the Department of the Air Force. The Air Force, until recently, was the newest service branch. Um, And it also created the National Security Council. And the model that the Americans and the British used to fight Nazi Germany, uh, the joint staff, as it was called at that time between the British and the Americans, morphed into what is now known as the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, which is all the service branches, heads of chief, and they all come together. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is the most senior ranking defense official in the military and reports directly to the Secretary of Defense. so stop me at any point if you want me to clarify or focus on, on no, one thing. No, a great overview. But um, so the United States Armed Forces right now um, are one of the largest military forces in the world in terms of total personnel. Um, and conscript, conscription, which is the ability to draft people, mm-hmm. um, has been used in the past, but it hasn't been used since after the Vietnam War. So I should backtrack a little bit. After (laughs) the National Security Act of 1947, after World War II, um, we had a, a, well, we'll say a few years of relative peace. And then we got involved in Korea. Uh, And the Korean War, uh, you know, we fought the good fight and we were trying to stop the spread of communism. Um, North Korea, and uh, that was backed by uh, the Chinese Communist Party and the uh, the Soviets um, were basically trying to expand their influence in the region. We didn't want to do that. We didn't want to let them do that. Um, and but we didn't actually end up winning that war off the heels of World War II. Uh, we signed an armistice, which mm-hmm. is a cessation of hostilities, which is still in force today. Um, there's actually never been a um, a peace. Uh, there's never been a surrender. There's never been uh, an agreement of peace. So we're still under the armistice. Uh, so technically, we're still at war with Korea. Um, but uh, that's been going on. And then, of course, you have uh, our next engagement, which was Vietnam. Um, we got involved in Vietnam. It was, uh, by all measures, actually, you know, the United States was winning that war. Um, and uh, until 
you know, the modern, what is now, you know, the modern media uh, embedded with a lot of, um, you know, American units and the American public saw the atrocities that were going on um, in the Vietnam conflict. And, you know, there was some domestic unrest in the United States about why the United States was there and how it was treating the local population and how, um, you know, draftees, which at the time that was, um, you know, a, a big thing is there were uh, sure. civil civil rights activists domestically that uh, were trying to, um, you know, push uh, equal rights for the black population in the United States and didn't see it as fair that they could be drafted, but they didn't have certain, uh, certain rights. So, um, Vietnam goes on for several years, um, and the United States population is uh, not happy about it. Um, so the United States uh, is involved in Vietnam. The best domestic population is not happy about it. Um, at the end of the day, the United States you know, pulls out of Vietnam rather abruptly and cedes the conflict um, you know, to the adversaries. We ended up losing that war. Um, and it was kind of a blow to the Defense Department, um, who coming off of World War II and the decisive victory there, and then Korea, which didn't end in a victory, but it also didn't end in a defeat. Right. Um, and it was the largest and most advanced modern military in history, uh, was defeated by an insurgency uh, mm-hmm. in a small little country uh, like Vietnam. So the... Mm-hmm. Uh, Goldwater-Nichols Act uh, kind of came in through Congress and revamped uh, the defense establishment. Um, The uh, Selective Service System retains the power to conscript males uh, and requires all male citizens and residents between the ages of 18 and 25 to register with the service. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there has been litigation since then on whether or not Registering only males and not females is unconstitutional um, or not, and that's you know currently uh, a debate that is being had mm-hmm. uh, is whether or not women should be subject to the draft. But the Defense Department came in and said, you know, we don't want to have a civilian population like in Vietnam that is disconnected, um, you know, from you know the the services. Um, in particular, the Army, and so the National Guard was created. Um, and the National Guard um, was created to augment the uh, active duty forces in the uh, United States so that, think of it this way, the, the reserve forces and the National Guard forces, um, I liken them to shock absorbers. So when the active duty Army and Navy gets deployed, um, obviously, you don't want them being deployed for years and years and years at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, so they go on what are called rotational deployments. So that in Iraq and Afghanistan, for instance, I went to Afghanistan and I was uh, I was in Afghanistan for about eight months. And I rotated out and other Marines came in and took my place and did exactly what I was doing for the next eight months. And then they left and then another group of Marines came in. And so uh, when you have that kind of high operational uh, tempo, people coming and going, um, you need reserve forces so that as the mm-hmm. years go on, you don't have the same group of people uh, redeploying, you know, 20, 30, 40 times. 
Um, And you still have a lot of people being deployed, uh, especially in the special operations branches, um, deploying a lot just because they're a lot smaller organizations. Um, But they they certainly uh, have gotten better since Vietnam at rotating people um, using the National Guard and the Reserve establishment. So um, after Vietnam, there were, uh, you know, deployments here and there. It should also be noted, by the way, that um, even though that uh, we don't really use the draft uh, since the Goldwater-Nichols Act and the realignment um, of the National Guard units, um, the United States has been more liberal in their use of the military because they see it as more connected to the people. And thus, uh, if a deployment happens and there's no civil unrest about the deployment, it's uh, more or less silent consent that the United States uh, mm-hmm. population is okay with the deployments that they're going on. So they've deployed since that time 173 times um, in different, and not all of those are, are massive uh, you know, conflicts like Iraq and Afghanistan. Some of that is you know, humanitarian missions back when the Philippines was underwater because of hurricanes and typhoons. Um, things like that. So they're not all conflicts, but they've been deployed a lot since then. Um, so we go on, and then you enter the 90s, and we have the full first Gulf War, where Saddam Hussein uh, invaded its tiny little neighbor, Kuwait, uh, and called Kuwait called on the United States to come in and help them. So the United States uh, staged in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and, you know, diplomatic negotiations were going on between Saddam Hussein and the United States. Um, And ultimately, the United States invaded Kuwait to liberate Kuwait and Mm -hmm. did that. Uh, But at the time, uh, it was not determined that we needed to uh, remove Saddam Hussein from power. We just needed to kind of rein him in a bit. He'd come back to bite us. um, And... You had a couple of other little things. You had NATO, uh, which is another organization that was established back in, uh, I want to say NATO was established in the 40s as well, uh, which is the North Atlantic uh, Treaty Organization. Uh, It is an organization designed to counter Russian aggression after, uh, as I said, Russia was trying to expand communism and uh, their influence in the region, which also included uh, Germany. So in the Eastern European countries. So uh, NATO was organized to try to counter uh, Russian expansion in Europe and uh, the larger region. So uh, NATO in the 90s, fast forward, uh, was Mm -hmm. used as the organization which intervened in a humanitarian crisis in Kosovo. Um, Slobodan Milosevic was a dictator in in Kosovo who um, was basically exterminating in the same way that uh, Nazi Germany was was uh, killing Jews, uh, exterminating the uh, some of the local ethnic population that he didn't happen to like. Um, the United States and NATO, actually it was more led by the British, but uh, same joint command from World War II. Um, there was a supreme allied commander of Europe who was in charge, General Clark, who reported to uh, NATO and that was its first uh, victory and its first deployment as a group, as an organization, uh, NATO. So then you had 9-11, and we enter mm-hmm. into modern contemporary 
history, uh, which we're still currently engaged in Afghanistan, and, and uh, we still have a presence in Iraq, albeit a very small one. Um, and we've been in those conflicts for the better part of two decades at this yeah. point. Um, so the United States Armed Forces, uh, you know, are, are considered the world's most powerful military. The, the military budget um, of the United States was 290, or excuse me, 693 billion in 2019, which was the highest in the world. Um, 36% uh, of the world's defense expenditures are that. 693 billion. So, mm-hmm. you know, 36% of all the defense spending in the entire world is taken up by uh, the United States. Um, and the U.S. Armed Forces, they have significant capabilities. I mentioned earlier how we use the Navy to deploy to Northern Africa to defeat the Barbary pirates in Tripoli. That's called power projection. Uh, so, our ability to be able to project our power across mm-hmm. the world has not diminished at all. Um, Theodore Roosevelt famously coined the phrase walk softly and carry a big stick mm-hmm. because the idea is that if you have a massive stick, um, you know, nobody's going to mess with you. Uh, that's called deterrence. So the idea of having a big United States military, even if you don't necessarily have to use it, you don't want to use it because it's so big that nobody wants to start conflict that they will surely lose because you have the biggest and most advanced military. Um, so, you know, oftentimes people say that United States military spending is too high and, um, you know, uh, then some popular responses in the defense community is, yeah, well, the cost of losing war would be a lot higher. So, um, I also forgot to mention, um, obviously something that has significantly influenced defense calculations in the last 70 plus years. Uh, was the creation of the atomic bomb. Um, The atomic bomb in World War II is what ended the war in Japan, coupled by the Russians uh, threatening to invade Japan as well, Um, forced the Japanese to end the war because we dropped two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was the only time that uh, nuclear weapons have been used in an actual conflict um, that started the nuclear, the atomic race between the Soviets and the United States. The Soviets tested um, a hydrogen bomb, an H-bomb, um, and since then we've had uh, nuclear proliferation issues. Um, but also since then, the United States, you know, save for uh, little, well, I should say relatively little skirmishes in the Gulf War and then also Iraq and Afghanistan, um, even though they're very long wars, they're not wars that aren't necessarily uh, peer-to-peer wars and conflicts. So it's not the United States and Russia. It's not a. It's mm-hmm. not the United States and China or or Japan or, or name your pretty sure. large country. Um, you know, and this is this is thought to have, regardless of what you think of nuclear weapons, um, nuclear weapons are widely considered the reason there has not been a third world war. Uh, because mm-hmm. obviously if we get into a world war with conventional weapons, it's not going to end with conventional weapons. It will likely end yeah. with atomic weapons. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of where we are right now. Um, yeah, a long you know, way from, from George Washington. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, the Air Force, our Air Force is the largest in the world. The Navy is the world's largest Navy by tonnage. 
uh, meaning weight. Mm-hmm. Um, the Marine Corps combined are the second largest uh, air Air Force, more or less, in the world after our Air Force, because the Navy has naval aviators and aircraft right. carriers, and the Marine Corps uh, has uh, pilots as well. And the Coast Guard, in terms of size, even though it's the Coast Guard and it's not a necessarily a um, an assertive branch itself, uh, is considered the 12th largest uh, Navy in the world. So, oh. Oh. Uh, as of last year, the United States has about, I want to say roughly 15,000 aircraft uh, in its military uh, inventory. Um, and, uh, yeah. So that's that's Gosh. <laughs> kind of an yeah. overview um, yeah. of uh, of the United States military establishment. Um, yeah, a long way in 250 years. Right. Yeah, and you know, lots of stuff uh, influenced it one way or the other. Sure. Um, so if we go back to the beginning, you talked a lot about drafting and selective service and things like that. Who mm-hmm. was in? Who were these people fighting in the original? Continental Army and Navy and the Marines? Um, well, I mean, so George Washington spent a lot of his own money uh, drafting and outfitting local people. Um, they were average, everyday people uh, that lived in the colonies and didn't want to see the British, uh, you know, continue their aggressive policies of housing, uh, forcing uh, soldiers to be housed in um local houses they didn't uh you know they found the british taxation system to be oppressive um several different reasons but it was just average people that uh joined uh you know these these military arms the army the navy i should say that uh you know we didn't have a, a huge navy um in the revolutionary war the french largely loaned us um their navy for for mm-hmm. that conflict um cuz ships are expensive and they take a yeah. long time to build and we just didn't we didn't have the time or the money at the time um mm-hmm. and so we relied heavily on uh the french navy in uh the revolutionary war um, but okay. we did have united states you know people at the time they weren't united states uh, people but um <laughs> members of the continental forces that served on uh, French Navy vessels, but you know we didn't have a uh, a navy in the Revolutionary War. Um, okay. Just, just so, to clarify. So what were what were the branches that we had at that time? Well, we had the Army, um, obviously the Continental Army. Um, the Continental Navy was established, but again, um, you know we just didn't have that many of our own sure. um, vessels itself. So and we had two battalions of Marines uh, that augmented uh, the the French uh, and our own small little Navy uh, that we had to protect those ships. And at the time, like I said, Marines were used to uh, largely in a defensive nature. They weren't really an attack force uh, to defend um, our own vessels from being boarded uh, by enemy combatants and taken over. So, okay. But we didn't have an air force. We didn't have space force. None of that. Those are obviously adaptations of, uh, the nature of war that has not that has not changed, but the character mm-hmm. of warfare has continued to change over time and involves new weapons and new domains. And um, so, as things change and and threats get bigger, uh, you need a larger defense establishment. Sure. 
yeah, it's incredible, incredible to see what, what this relatively small continental forces were, were able to achieve for, for liberty yeah. and creating a new country. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and it was, it was anything but certain until, uh, general Cornwallis, who was a, uh, British general, uh, uh surrendered in the south at Yorktown because he was surrounded by the French Navy and the Continental Army um, and, you know, small French forces on land. Um, you know, it definitely was not certain that the United States was going to win that war. Um, and it was a remarkable military uh, victory, uh, but it was even more remarkable because it was obviously underpinned by mm-hmm. the political ideals of the Continental Congress. And that's why um, you know, the, the founders in our country were so genius uh, in that they wrote documents that were timeless, that could continue, uh, continuously be um, adapted, more or less, not really adapted, but they could be suited for all different times. And obviously, Thomas Jefferson and others um, created all men are created equal, uh, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Uh, there was no mention of slavery. Uh, and that was intentional. Uh, there was no mention of humans as property because they knew yeah. that um, slavery would continue to be a thorn in the side of the United States. And in the founding documents, they wanted to give future generations that would have uh, a um, better chance of abolishing the slave trade and slavery. They wanted to give them the, um, you know, the the language needed in foundational documents to be able to to do that generations later. So they were. Geniuses, um, obviously, a lot of them were very flawed men, um, mm-hmm. but you know, not history is is written and you know carried out by flawed men and women. So sure, yep. You know. And we have a lot to be grateful for too. Mhm. So. Absolutely. All right. Well, Cole, thank you so much for joining us today for this great overview. I think this is really gonna gonna help as we move forward to talk about the actual battles and how we won our freedom. Yeah, absolutely. And and if there are any questions or anything, feel free to reach back out and I will answer them to the best of my ability. Great, thank you. They freed us all from tyranny. We stand everything for liberty. And they thought so we would be America, land of the free.